0: Our next speaker is Dr. Nick Beaton. Nick is a research fellow in mathematics at the University of Melbourne. Unlike most mathematicians, his research really does just involve adding numbers to count things, but that's harder than it sounds because it turns out if you do it for long enough, the numbers get really, really big. However, it is suspected that the numbers are just a ruse and his real intention is to get paid to drink coffee. Nick Beaton. Thank you. Um, As you've probably gathered by this point, I'm going to be talking about a mathematician. This particular mathematician that I'd like to talk about was extraordinary not only because of his remarkable intellect and his influence on mathematical thinking, but also because of his generosity, the way that he viewed mathematics as a social activity to be shared with anyone who was interested. His 30-year amphetamine habit, his eccentric behaviour, and because of his singular drive in pursuing mathematical truth. And as if all this wasn't enough, he has a kid's book written about him. How many scientists can you say that about? Paul Erdisch was born on March 26, 1913, in Budapest, Hungary, to two high school mathematics teachers, Anna and Lajos. While Anna was giving birth to him in the hospital, Their two daughters, aged three and five, contracted septic scarlet fever and died that day. Sorry to start on a downer. This tragedy led to Paul and his mother having an extremely close relationship for the remainder of her life. In August 1914, when Paul was just one year old, his father Lajos was captured in a Russian offensive into Hungary and sent to Siberia for what ended up being six years. With his father in prison and his mother teaching school during the day, Erich was raised by a German governess. He became proficient with numbers as a toddler by studying the calendar to work out how many days it would be before his mother was home for the holidays. Paul was a mathematical prodigy. At three he could multiply three-digit numbers in his head and at four he discovered negative numbers. He would entertain himself by computing crazy things like how long it would take a train to reach the sun And he would amuse his mother's friends by asking them their date of birth and their time of birth, and then calculating in his head how many seconds they'd been alive. (laughs) For most of Paul's childhood, his mother kept him out of school, fearing that it was the source of deadly childhood contagions. I don't know how... I mean, she was a teacher, so I don't know, you know, how that worked, but anyway. So he studied at home with a tutor. And in fact, he stayed home until high school, and then even in high school, he only went every second year because his mother kept changing her mind about whether he was going to die or not. While he was in school and university, he and his friends formed a sort of mathematics club where they'd meet in town and discuss mathematics and politics. As expected, Paul excelled in mathematics at university, producing a number of highly original results, some of which I'll get to later. After university, he had short-term positions at Manchester, the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, which was at the same time as Albert Einstein and Kurt Gödel, amongst others, Purdue University, and the University of Notre Dame. Notre Dame offered to make his position permanent, but he refused, not wishing to be tied down to a permanent job. And as you'll see as this story progresses, Paul very much did not like to stay in one place for any significant amount of time. In 1954, he was invited to a conference in the Netherlands, but the US government, realizing that he was from Hungary, you know, a, a terrible socialist country, um, refused to give him a return visa. They said he could leave, but you know, we won't let you come back in. He was so offended at the thought of being stuck in one country for the rest of his life that he quit his job at Notre Dame and left for Europe and would end up not returning to the US until the mid-60s. So that's the first part of Paul's life. So now I should get to part of why he's interesting as a mathematician and and why I'd like to talk about him. So if we count by number of peer-reviewed articles published, then Paul Eddish is easily the most prolific mathematician in history and possibly one of the most prolific scientists in history. He has to his name approximately 1,525 peer-reviewed papers if we count instead by the number of pages instead of the number of papers, he's surpassed only by Leonard Euler, who's one of the, you know, the big daddies, one of the, the great men of mathematics. Paul's approach to mathematics was extremely collaborative. Those 1,500 papers were published with some 511 different collaborators. As you can imagine, for someone who published so much, he worked on a great many areas of mathematics. He worked in Number theory, combinatorics, probability, complex analysis, topology, set theory. If these things don't mean anything to you, sorry, but I'm trying to illustrate the fact that he did a lot of stuff. (laughs) He never had any interest in fame or fortune. And he was always very happy to share his methods and results for others. And in fact, he had a gift for, for judging what people were interested in and what kind of problem to give them to help them advance their career. In fact, he would, you know, examine problems and decide. Well, you know, this problem is is fairly easy, or maybe this other problem is hard, and and he'd assign monetary values to these problems. So, maybe an easy problem was worth a dollar, um, a difficult problem could be worth a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. And if someone came up with a, a correct solution to these these problems and they mailed him the solution, and he decided it was correct, he'd write out a check and mail it back to them. Um, since he died, these, um, you know, these checks have sort of become collector's items. I don't know if you could actually cash them anymore. His first major result at the age of 20 was a proof of a result in number theory called Chebyshev's Theorem, um, which is a result that talks about um, prime numbers and where prime numbers are located. One of his most famous results um, was another proof regarding prime numbers, which is called the prime number theorem. He's perhaps most famous, however, um, especially among mathematicians not working in number theory or combinatorics, for something called Erdős numbers. So there was an idea that had been floating around since the 1930s or so, which we know now is the idea of six degrees of separation. And so this was the idea that basically if you pick any two random people in the world, then you can find a chain of acquaintances to join those two people, which is no more than six people long. So, you know, when this was first proposed, it was fairly unscientific, um, but it's since gained a lot of traction. So, in the 50s and 60s, Paul and his collaborators, notably another Hungarian called Alfred Rényi, started investigating random networks. And so, these are a nice uh, mathematical model for people. So, we sort of think of a network as a bunch of nodes, and then we draw lines between these nodes when there's some relationship between them. For example, if they're, if they're acquaintances. Nowadays, of course, there's a lot of research into areas like this because we have Facebook and the internet and everything like that, and so networks and random networks and everything are, are a big deal now. But in the 60s, as a bit of a joke. Some friends of Paul's wondered, well, what happens if we drew up a network of mathematicians? And so, the, you know, they were mathematicians. They wanted to be precise. So they said that we'll say the two mathematicians in this network are joined if they've published a paper together. And so they started, you know, they got out a big sheet of paper and they started writing down people's names and joining lines and stuff. And then they quickly realized that sort of Paul Erdish was in the middle and all the lines were coming out of Paul Erdish. <laughs> and so they said, okay, well, you know, we, let's, let's use Erdish to somehow measure the connectivity of this graph. And so what they came up with is what they called an Erdish number. And the way these work are as follows. So Paul's number is zero. Anyone who's published with Paul has number one. Anyone who's not published with Paul but published with someone with number one has number two, and so on and so forth. So your Erdős number basically measures how far in this network you are from Paul Erdős. So this sounds kind of lame, but in fact most mathematicians nowadays probably know their Erdős number. (laughs) So mine's three. Um, There's a three over there. there. Are there any mathematicians here who can beat that? No? Oh, okay. Um, so of mathematicians who have an Erdős number, so obviously if, if there is no connection between you and Paul, then you, know, you can't really have an Erdős number, or we say it's infinity. But among, yeah, you're, you're infinitely far away from Paul. <laughs> but of, of mathematicians with a finite number, about 80% have number 5 or less. And the average is about 465 and so it turns out, while it's, you know, nowadays, now, to, you know, to spoil the end of the story, now that Paul has died, it's impossible for a new person to get number one. Um, it turns out it's also really difficult to get a really high number. So the largest known Eddish number is 13, I think. Um, but it's sort of, it's quite difficult to get a high Eddish number, right? Because you could, you're only allowed to publish with other people who also have high Eddish numbers. And if one of them cheats and goes and publishes with someone who has number two, then suddenly your number jumps down to like four or something. So there's only a few people who have very high Erdish numbers. As was hinted at the, uh, at the start of the session, um, you know, this is related to, to Kevin Bacon, right? So pr- people have probably heard of you know, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon or something like that, where you pick actors and you join them by saying that they're connected when they've been in a movie together. And so people have been clever and they've said, well, you know we could have Erdish numbers and Bacon numbers, or we could combine them and have Erdish Bacon numbers. Irish bacon sounds tasty. Um, which is where you add your Irish number and your bacon number. And it turns out, you know, there I think like Natalie Portman has published a, a psychology paper or something, so I think she has a number, and you know, there, there are a number of, of people who have these numbers. And there are more interesting variants too, like Black Sabbath numbers, where uh, you you have a number, I, I think it's sort of if you've performed a, on a stage together with people, then you're connected, and then you have to work your way back to Black Sabbath. And then some person on the internet who had a lot of spare time came up with Eddish, Bacon Sabbath numbers, where you add all three. Turns out the lowest number is number eight, and it belongs to a gentleman in Stephen Hawking. <laughs> okay, so, I should continue with Paul's life. So from the time that he quit his job at Notre Dame, Paul more or less gave up on having a job or a home altogether. He basically spent the remaining 40 years of his life just traveling the world. He, he famously traveled around with two half-empty suitcases, and he'd basically correspond with people you know, from afar, and, and he'd come and visit them, and he'd stay in people's houses, and you know, he'd work really hard with them, you know, 19-hour days for, for a couple of weeks, until he basically just exhausted whoever it was that he was staying with, and then he'd just move on. And he more or less did this for 40 years. Um, he would, fr- it's like I said, he would frequently stay at the houses of his collaborators, and this was good because he was sort of famously incapable of taking care of himself. So um, he he didn't really know how to cook or wash his own clothing or do or drive a car or anything like that. Um, so he'd basically depend on the people he was visiting for everything. At conferences, he'd frequently skip the talks and just gather a bunch of mathematicians and take them to a hotel room and then just work with them. You know, there, there was one time where. He famously met with six different groups of mathematicians in a hotel room at once. So he sort of set one group up on the bed, another group up over in the kitchen or something, and and was just working with these people, these six groups of people at the same time. He'd send 1,500 letters a year, and these letters were not friendly personal letters. They were usually something like, you know, Dear Bob, today I'm in Australia, tomorrow I leave for Hungary. Let X be the largest integer such that N is... and so on. He knew a great deal of phone numbers, but he had trouble remembering people's names. he generally called people by their last names, um, the one exception being a mathematician named Tom Trotter, whom he called Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, he had a lot of funny names for, um, for many different things. So he referred to children. He, he loved playing with children. He, he referred to children as epsilons. Um, for, mathematician, for non-mathematicians, epsilon is a very small quantity in math. Women were bosses, men were slaves, to uh, if you quit mathematics, then you died, if you actually died, then you left. (laughs) Um, If he gave a mathematical talk, then he'd said that he preached, and and countries had funny names too. So the US was referred to as Sam, the USSR was Joe, and Australia was Ned, after a, a certain bushranger. Um, he was generous. He would basically, because he spent all his time just traveling around, visiting people and not really having to pay for very much, um, he'd give away all the money that he came into. Famously, he, wants, he won the Wolf Prize in 1984, which is a famous um, Israeli prize, which came with a $50,000 award, and he donated all but 720 of it to a scholarship. He made it his mission throughout his life to seek out childhood, child prodigies. He would find children who he thought were interested in mathematics, or young people who were studying at university, and he'd help them by giving them problems and communicating with them over the years and helping to develop their career. Now, I, I did mention amphetamines at the start, so I should probably say something about that. So, for the last thirty or so years of his life, he sort of you know he worked nineteen-hour days, and and he did this by taking ten to twenty milligrams of benzodrine a day. Um, in addition, he was sort of constantly drinking espresso and, and popping caffeine tablets. In 1979, a, a, a frequent collaborator named Ron Graham bet Paul $500 that he couldn't stop taking amphetamines for a month. Paul accepted the challenge and went cold turkey for 30 days. After Graham paid up, Erdos said, You've showed me I'm not an addict, but I didn't get any work done. I'd get up in the morning and just stare at a blank piece of paper. I'd have no ideas, just like an ordinary person. You've set mathematics back a month." (laughs) And he promptly resumed taking the pills and continued to do so for the rest of his life. And as a final story, which I think is a nice illustration of of his dedication to mathematics, when he was quite old, um, he was going blind in one eye and he needed a corneal transplant. Now a, a friend's wife was a, a, you know, someone high up in a hospital and so managed to pull some strings to arrange for a transplant and surgery. Now initially when the surgery was scheduled it conflicted with a talk he was supposed to give to in some town down the road and so he tried to cancel. Um, but you know, this, this friend's wife managed to persuade him to, to stick to the schedule. And so he's in the hospital in the waiting room and then the doctor comes in to talk to him about the surgery and, and Paul says, you know, doctor, will I be able to read? And the doctor said, yes, of course, you'll be able to read. That's the point of the surgery. So Paul said, okay. And so then he went into the the surgery room, and then the the, the doctors were prepping themselves and everything, and then they turned down the lights to get ready for surgery. Then Paul turned to one of the doctors and said, why are you turning the lights down? And the doctor replied, well, so we can do the surgery. But you said I'd be able to read. (laughs) He then proceeded to have a huge argument with the surgeon about why, since he was having surgery on only one eye, he couldn't read a mathematical journal with the other eye during surgery. The, the doctor was, was horrified, and of course the surgery was very expensive and everything, so he called the, the math department at the local university and said, can you please send a mathematician over here to talk Paul, talk to Paul about mathematics during the surgery? And they they managed to find a mathematician who obliged and so this mathematician came to the hospital and sat down next to Paul while he was having one eye operated on and they talked about mathematics for two hours. And the surgery went fine and he could see after that. (laughs) Sometime later he he was having heart problems and he was spending a lot of time in hospital, um, but he'd still have a parade of mathematicians coming in through the hospital, talking to him about mathematics. And he'd frequently shoo out the doctors and nurses, telling them, you know, I'm busy, I'm busy with mathematics. Paul died on September 20, 1996, in Warsaw, of a heart attack at age 83. The memorial service, which was held for him in Budapest, was one of the largest ever held in Hungary, with more than 500 people in attendance. And I'll finish by um, butchering some Hungarian to, to tell you the, um, the epitaph which Paul wrote for himself, which is on his tombstone, which reads, nem which translates as, Finally, I am becoming stupider no more. Thank you.